0: I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health and fitness industry to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. Hello, welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Spencer, and my guest this week is an award-winning writer and science journalist. Her works appeared in publications including Best American Science Writing, New York Times, Washington Post Magazine, LA Times, San Francisco Chronicle, Oprah's Magazine, The O Magazine, and many more publications. She's just published a brilliant book called How to Break Up with Your Phone. And her name's Catherine Price. And in this conversation, we're going to talk about dopamine and the effect that that has on the body and how that's stimulated by not only the apps, but the mobile phone itself. We talk about smartphones and psychology and how there are literally thousands of people in companies like Facebook and similar whose sole focus it is, is to get your attention and keep you in these apps. And then the implications that has on your your wider relationships with yourself, with your family and loved ones. It's a really, really great book. You can connect with Catherine at Catherine underscore Price on Twitter. Her website is phonebreakup.com. And the book is out now in hardback and it's called How to Break Up With Your Phone by Catherine Price, I guess this week. Enjoy. Catherine Price, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I've read the book. It's excellent. We were just joking off air about how the dog got halfway through it as well, but didn't read a word. I want to talk about some of the really important topics that you raise in the book here. But let's start with why
1: did you write this? I wrote this book because I started to realize that my own relationship with my phone was not healthy. And, you know, I started to notice things like looking down and seeing that was in my hand and not really knowing how it got there or what I was doing, and then wondering what had happened to the past half hour of my life. And it really came to a head when I had a baby and had a lot of, you know, sleepless nights and kind of bored moments when you're caring for a newborn and realized that I was catching her looking up at me as I was looking down at my phone mm. and really realizing that that was not what I wanted her to think of when she thought of her relationship with her mother and not the impression I wanted her to have a human relationship. So that was kind of the wake-up experience for me. And I have a background as a science journalist, and I've done a lot of work with mindfulness. So both of those experiences really contributed to the idea for the book and then the process of researching and writing it. Mm.
0: Okay, so it came very much from a personal experience. Yeah. When you told people you were writing the book, what sort of response did you get from them?
1: Well, I was surprised by how natural the metaphor felt to people of the relationship with the phone. Mm. So people weren't asking me, what do you mean? I don't understand. They would say, oh my God, I need to do that too. Mm. That was the most common response. Or maybe even more commonly, my husband needs to do that or my wife needs to do that or my you know boyfriend, girlfriend, child, mother, someone else in my life needs to do that. And it was really interesting to me to realize or to start to think, why is it that that relationship metaphor works so well? Why do people just understand what I'm talking about? Because you wouldn't say, like, I'm having a relationship with my refrigerator or like I need to break up with my toaster oven or something like that, even though it's technological. And what I came to realize is that they really have a two-way interaction with their phones in that we do stuff to engage with them, obviously, but they also reach out to us through notifications Mm. and things that they do within the phone themselves, it really does make it like a two-way relationship. And then when I thought about it more, I thought, well, okay, am I really in a relationship with the notifications on my phone? Or am I in a relationship with the people who are programming those notifications? Mm. And I think it's the latter. And in that case, what are their incentives and motivations in this relationship? And do those align with my motivations and incentives for my own life? And in most cases, I realized they most definitely do not align because they want me to spend as much time as possible on my phone and I want to have a meaningful and joyful life.
0: Mm. Yeah. What are some of the problems that you see people having with their phones? I mean, the obvious one is the one that you mentioned, being on your phone in the presence of your child. What are the other problem areas? I mean, why should we care about this? What damage is it causing?
1: Well, that's the whole <laughs> much to be said about all of those things. I think the simplest thing, the simplest, biggest problem is that people aren't aware of what they're doing on their phones. People are just picking them up in any still moment, any quiet moment and filling their brains constantly with stuff that one might classify as junk, (laughs) but basically constantly on intake mode, constantly just consuming or allowing themselves to be fed with whatever's on the phone instead of taking a step back and asking themselves, what do I want to spend my time on? And also allowing your brain space, moments where it's not being just stuffed with random things you see on Twitter Mm. so that it actually can have some thoughts of its its own. I mean, in other words, I really do believe that spending lots of time on our phone and the average person is spending more than four hours a day on the phone, on the screen, it's interfering with our ability to think critically and have creative thoughts. And I think that's something that most people don't think of immediately when they think of the downsides of phones Mm. and something that is really terrifying, frankly. And we're raising our children to do the same thing. That I think is also really yeah. worth thinking about.
0: Yeah, Um I mean, I've got a three-year-old goddaughter who said to me a few months ago, Auntie Lily," which is what they call me, you know, get off your phone. And I thought, <laughs> that's terrifying when a three-year-old is telling me that I should get off my phone. And it also makes the connection between me being on my phone and me not concentrating on her. So that for me was a real
1: jolt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, that's a yeah, I mean, I certainly have heard of like, you know, five year olds saying to their parents, like, feels so, so horrible when someone is acting like they're paying attention to you, but in fact, you know, they're not actually paying attention with you because they're texting with somebody else at the same time. And, yeah. yeah, it's such a horrible feeling. Kids pick up on that and I think are a little bit more vocal in a way that I actually think more adults should be. Like, yeah. that's great that she said that, you know, but you think like, we should feel better at saying to a friend who does that to us, hey, get off your phone. Yeah, <laughs> like we, We're here to talk to each other. And why are you doing that?
0: Yeah, well, I'm really against having phones on the table whenever I'm with someone, because it basically suggests to me that anybody who wants to send a notification, a Viagra spam email, call you, text you, bing you, ding you, is more important than the conversation we're having right now.
1: Yes, definitely. And then there are also studies that have been done involving phones on tables showing that perhaps unsurprisingly, having a cell phone on the table decreases the perceived quality of the interaction. But more surprisingly, researchers have shown that if you have a phone on the table, even if it's not being used, people perform worse on tasks that require them to think. So Mm -hmm. researchers gave people like, like a word problem or some kind of thing to figure out and had one group of people who were doing so with a phone next to them and another group that were doing so without a phone near them, the people with the phone did worse. And the Mm -hmm. theory being that when you have your phone out, part of your attention is on the phone. So you may be thinking you're engaging with your friend or thinking you're focusing fully on that word problem, but part of your mind is over there with the phone and therefore you're not going to be able to engage fully with the other task or relationship.
0: Yeah. Speaking of myself, that's definitely true. I have an interesting relationship with my phone, which is why I was looking forward to reading the book and having this conversation, because I find that I do still get a dopamine hit. The excitement and anticipation of seeing what might be waiting for me in the morning. I don't look at it first thing, but it's not long. I'll turn it off in the cinema, for example, but there's that little frisson of excitement when I turn it back on. Who's messaged? What emails come through? So I definitely have that kind of dynamic with it. And let's talk a bit about dopamine. There was an area in the book where you talk about somebody from Dopamine Labs and Instagram? Can you just talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, I can. I will say though that he's kind of stepped back from. If you're talking about the specific, like the, are you talking about the totally personalized? Yes, where like delivered. Yes, exactly that. I realize that I don't want to emphasize that because it's like he's backtracked a bit on that. So that's like the one thing in the book that I'm kind of like if, eh, but I can certainly talk about dopamine and, and yeah, yeah, so. Dopamine is a brain chemical that tells us when a behavior is worth doing again. So it is essential for us in terms of our evolution because dopamine is what makes you remember when a food tasted good so that you'll eat it again. It's what makes you remember that sex was something worth doing against a procreation. Hmm. It's behind all of our habits. Anytime you do something and you get positive feedback, even if it's as simple as like leaving your house with pants on, right? Like you (laughs) you associate that with, oh yeah, that was worth doing again, and you do it again. So it's very important, but dopamine can also establish habits that turn into addictions where it's like too strong, Mm. um, which you can see just using the example you're talking about at the movies, Anyone who doesn't think we're addicted to our phones, I would suggest that you look in a theater the moment when the curtain goes down and see how many blue screens you suddenly see Mm -hmm. in the darkness, right? Like you can't smoke in theater. So that addiction isn't something you can indulge where you can look at the phone. Anyway, dopamine is very, very much a part of all of our brains, right? We all have a dopamine system. So we all are going to feel that twitch when we look at our phone because they are essentially little dopamine delivery devices. In nature, dopamine is triggered in response to stimuli that are naturally there, right? Like a raspberry bush. Nobody necessarily put the raspberry bush in the middle of the woods that you stumble across and then enjoy and remember. But in your phone, anything that stimulates dopamine on your phone is there on purpose, just like a casino and a slot machine where anything that's on those machines is there for a purpose. And once you start to recognize the role of dopamine in creating these repetitive behavior loops that can turn into addictions, and then you start to recognize what triggers dopamine and then you look at your phone, you'll be a little horrified. So dopamine is released in response to like bright colors, you know, like that raspberry bush, the bright red berry against the green background that will release dopamine. Notice that all of the little badges on your phone that say that you've got new message or whatever, those are all red. That's not a coincidence. Mm. Your phone itself, the screen, all the icons are beautiful colors. That's not a coincidence. If you experiment with turning your phone to black and white, you'll quickly see how much of a difference just the presence of the color makes in making your phone an appealing. Yeah, it does. Right? It's very interesting. Then Mm. you have things like obviously like notifications. Anytime there's a notification and you check and there's something waiting for you, your brain releases dopamine telling you, Oh, that was worth doing again, you know. And that can actually get to the point where you release dopamine in anticipation when you're near your phone and you're anticipating. Yeah, there's going to be something there waiting for you, which then leads you to pick up the phone. You have a craving to pick up the phone. So that's when the, you really developed a conditioned response to the phone, just like Pavlov, the Russian scientist, got his dogs to drool when they heard a bell mm. by ringing a bell every time they fed them. Right. But then, even more, I mean, on the phone, there's just so many things. Like we like unpredictability, that is a huge dopamine trigger. You'd think it would be more appealing to always have something good waiting for you. But in reality, not knowing what's going to happen is even more likely to get us to repeat the behavior. And you can see that with the slot machine. Yeah. Rewards. Like, if you get a reward, then obviously that's going to trigger dopamine. So in the case of a slot machine, you get money every once in a while. In the case of your phone, you get a new piece of information or you get a like on social media. All of those things will stimulate dopamine. And then if you take it one level further and say, okay, well, Their phones are packed with these triggers to get our brains to release dopamine with the goal of getting us to spend time on our phones. The makers are also doing things that are similar to casinos to make us lose track of time, by which I mean a casino would not have clocks on the walls. It doesn't have windows. And that's to really make you lose context. And on phones, social media feeds, there's some changes being made now, but they're endless, right? Like they can keep scrolling, 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 Mm -hmm. and you will never finish it. And that's one of the reasons that when we have those moments that all of us have where you look at your hand and your phone is there and you have no idea what happened to the past 20 minutes, that's, you're having that casino moment where, yeah. where you know, there was no clock on the wall, so you didn't know how much time you spent.
0: Yeah. I occasionally, well, very rarely, but it does happen. I'll look at my phone and I won't remember why I was looking at it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So
0: I've, I've had some fleeting little, oh, I'll Google this. So I'll just check that. And then I get to my phone, I unlock it. And I thought, oh, what was it? What was it I was going to do?
1: Right. 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 Exactly. That's crazy. <laughs> Yeah. And that's why it's so important once you recognize that that is happening and once you recognize what your triggers are, everyone's triggers are going to be different. For some people, it's social media, for some people, it's the news, dating apps, email, text messaging, all of these do have similarities in that you never know what's going to be waiting for you. And there's some kind of gratification or reward that can come from it. Mm-hmm. But you know, once you recognize what your particular issue is, then you'll start to catch yourself going into these dopamine-fueled cycles. And that's when you can start to build better boundaries and walls for yourself, both psychologically and also within your phone and in your physical environment to make it harder for you to kind of slip into these automatic behaviors.
0: I guess it's like a double whammy, isn't it? Because you've got the dopamine that's been triggered by the particular app. Then the dopamine's been triggered
1: by accessing the phone as well. yeah, There's quite, yes. quite a number of layers to it. Yeah, the phone itself is a dopamine trigger for sure. But then the apps or any app that makes money off of ads is going to be designed to steal time from you, steal yeah. time and attention, because that's how they make money. Yeah. So yeah, it's re- it's really tricky. And anytime you let a notification be on, well, then you're just giving yourself away because notifications, You. it's interesting to recognize that when you hear a notification, your conscious brain is shut off. Like you're not making a decision with reasoning part of your brain. You have like, that notification is tapped into a very ancient part of your brain that's responding via dopamine to say, oh, you better check it. And if you don't, you're actually going to release stress hormones that will make you feel anxious. If anyone feels anxious when they're separated from their phone, which is pretty much everyone, that's because we've been conditioned to to release adrenaline and cortisol when we can't check. Mm. So it's just amazing to realize that our bodies and brains have been hijacked without us recognizing what's happening. And then we're surprised when we fighter phone in our hands, yeah. or when we see someone check their phone in the middle of the conversation, yeah. not recognizing that there's a physiological reason that that's happening. It's because we've conditioned ourselves to do that. It no longer becomes part of this like conscious choice. And so the point of my book and the thing I think we all need to work on is trying to become aware of those automatic responses and then engage our conscious mind so that our conscious mind, our consciousness, can fight back against these very animalistic habits that we're developing.
0: Yeah, I thought it was really interesting in the book, which is called How to Break Up with Your Phone, and it's out now at Hardback. Really interesting that you said that Steve Jobs and quite a number of other tech giants have very strict boundaries around their children's access to technology, and that's got to be one of the most telling things. The designer of the iPad and iPhone limits his child's access to those devices.
1: Yes, I mean, when you start to put together all these anecdotes that have come out over the years, there is a theme which is that the people who are designing technological devices and certainly the apps have a tendency overall to limit their own family's exposure to the products that they're creating. In the case of Steve Jobs, there was like a famous scene written about by Nick Bilton in the New York Times where he asked Steve Jobs if his kids liked the iPad. And he was like, Steve Jobs said they don't have an iPad. (laughs) And then in that article, there's comments from friends of the jobs that say that at their dinner table the kids were very much engaged in conversation. There were not devices at the table. There were not TVs in the background. Yeah. But there's been so many more examples of that recently with people like Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook saying basically just kind of, it was almost like a, an apology, like a public apology for what he created in a speech in Philadelphia last year, where he said of Facebook, and I quote, God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains." Mm. Right. I mean, there's been a number of very high profile tech executives who either have come out with uh, stories that they limit their family's exposure or outright making comments or admissions that they knew what they were doing when they were designing these products. They were meant to get people to spend a lot of time on them and they feel a bit of guilt about it now.
0: Yeah, I thought that's really interesting. The book as well, when you talk about how many people that are employed in these companies whose sole job is to keep us on the apps for as long as possible. Right. It's very much us, one person versus a team of hundreds, possibly thousands of people.
1: Yeah, thousands of people. And it's interesting, there's a quote that I love by this guy, Tristan Harris, who's a leading advocate in the space and used to be a design ethicist at Google, and now leaves this Center for Humane Technology that tries to encourage better technology design. Anyway, he talks about how never before in the history of the world has so many people's attention been Basically defined by a group of twenty-five to thirty-five year olds, mostly white men living in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the world's attention is being defined by these like very very small place. And when you think about that, I mean, I used to live in the Bay Area, and I just think, wow, I don't want the, <laughs> the term the programmers. I don't want them to be uh, telling me how I'm spending my time.
0: Yeah, I love the quote in your book, which is, "Focus isn't profitable; distraction is." Right. Right
1: which is very true. And even in something that's intellectual, like I don't know if you're reading a long form article in a newspaper online, they don't want you to actually stay on that page forever. They mm-hmm. want you to go to a different page because then they get more clicks and hits. And, you know, they want that article to be broken up by ads. And they want, I mean, in many cases, you'll see slideshows and you think to yourself, why is this a slideshow? I just want to get the information, mm-hmm. like on WebMD, for example. And it's because you make more money, the more distracting it is.
0: Yeah. Talking about distraction, what does prolonged use of a mobile phone do to our attention spans, to our ability to think deeply?
1: What are the effects from a scientific point of view? Well, we need to remember or recognize that our brains are constantly changing in response to what we have them do. So if you're trying to learn French or something and you spend a lot of time doing French flashcards, you're changing your brain, right? And in the same sense, if you're spending four hours a day on your smartphone, you're changing your brain. So it's important to ask yourself, what are you training yourself to do? <laughs> you're not training yourself to like play the piano, right? If you think about what your phone is doing, it's not training you to concentrate. You could say, oh, well, I'm concentrating on my phone. Sure, you're concentrating on your phone, but on your phone itself, you're swiping between apps. Hmm. And then within apps, it's a constant stream of, of different pieces of information. In your email inbox, just on one screen, you could have like 20 different messages, each of which is competing for your attention. So the important thing to recognize there is that actually our brains would prefer to be in a distractible state because if there's a threat in your environment, you want to be distractible. I often talk about that in terms of like, you know, if you don't notice a lion in the bushes, then you're not going to survive to make the next generation. But more recently, I've also been thinking about it in terms of people on a subway or the train who are all so absorbed in their smartphones that (laughs) a clever criminal could easily just like grab stuff out of their bag no one would notice because everybody's so intense on their phone yeah so in other words our default is that our brains want to be distractible it's actually extremely hard to learn how to train your brain to focus yep because it requires not only like picking what to focus on but ignoring everything else in your environment and that is really hard so when you're spending all this time on your phone and you're presenting it with so many distractions you're tiring out the areas of your brain that are able to maintain focus and what's more you're encouraging this already preferable state of distraction so in short like if you feel that your attention span is not what it used to be and you're having trouble concentrating and this seems to have happened roughly in the time that you've had a phone you're not crazy it is actually true
0: I definitely think my attention span and ability to focus has been adversely Affected by having a phone. I absolutely do. I have to really concentrate now for reading. And I've always been a voracious reader all the way from university where I did English lit. And now I have to really concentrate. I find my eyes will skim. and Sometimes I'm deliberately skim reading, but other times you want to be really drawn into the richness of the language and to really focus on it. And I have to work very hard now to maintain that focus. And I don't believe I used to.
1: Yes. I mean, I had the same thing happen to me where I realized I could not read a book or a page in a magazine article. more than a few minutes before reaching for my phone. Mm. And the good news is that you can get that back. Like I've put a lot of effort in this element. I mean, this is in the book as well, but really into rebuilding my ability to focus, which anyone can do. You can just start by setting a timer and just reading for 10 minutes without checking your phone. And that sounds so silly, but it's actually going to be hard and that's okay, but you can build it back up to the point that Like I was just realizing this past weekend, I read two books about endocrinology for pleasure. (laughs) And I was, and I thought, wow, that's something I could not have done physically three years ago, because I couldn't concentrate on, you know, like a tabloid for that long. I mean, it's really disturbing, but also inspiring in the sense that that is something that once you become aware of it, you can work to undo and it feels really good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So let's come on to the technology triage, which you talk about in your book. Just talk us
1: through that. The the idea behind the technology triage is you have to know where you are before you try to go anywhere. Otherwise, you'll end up lost and failing. So a lot of times people will start by just saying, oh, I need to break up with my phone or, oh, I need to spend less time on my phone. But they haven't identified why. And they also don't know what they're actually doing on their phone in the moment because it's not all good and it's not all bad. There's plenty of productive things you can do on your phone. And you also might be using your phone to offset some time you might have been spending on your computer, in which case, like, I don't know, maybe it's less efficient to do the typing on your phone, but it's not really, like, it's more nuanced than just all being good or bad. Mm -hmm. So what I encourage people to do in the beginning is to use the time tracking app, which is going to soon be baked into at least Apple's operating system, to just tell how much time are you spending per day on your phone. And then what is that time going to? What apps are you spending the most time on? And for many people, that's a really big wake-up call because you'll think you're not really spending that much time or checking that much. And then you realize that you actually are checking like 60 times a day. I mean, that's low, like more than 100 times a day. And staring at the screen for a cumulative four to six hours is what people typically are spending, which is crazy. Mm. And that normally or often is a wake-up moment that makes people realize, oh, wait, I don't want to be doing that. And then the next step is to say, well, okay, you don't want to be doing that. What do you want to be doing? What would success look like? What's a good, healthy relationship with your phone? What does that look like to you? And what do you want to do with the time that you're going to be taking back from your phone? Because if you don't know the answer to that question, you're going to go right back to your phone. And so the technology triage is an attempt to prevent people from jumping in too quickly to just making arbitrary changes and restrictions. And instead to say, before you make a change, you have to have a goal. And so that's what
0: the triage is about. Yeah. And if anyone wants to find out more about that, it's there in the book. And the last thing, Catherine, I want to just talk to you about is your seven phone habits of highly effective people. I've got that sort of the page open at the moment. Maybe there's seven of them. It's going to take a while to talk through. So what's perhaps do you think the most pertinent one for people?
1: Well, so this is a part of the end of the plan. Just to give this context, the fourth week of the plan is devoted to taking what you've learned and then turning it into a long-term plan, so that you finish this breakup process with actually a sustainable relationship and like a way to keep it going. So, yeah, I'm looking at my so it's you know things like I have healthy phone routines. I have manners around you know etiquette around using your phone. Uh, you take breaks from your phone. You have a life off of your phone. I mean, I think that. One of the most important things there is the routine aspect is that you wanna to get to a point where you've made your decisions ahead of time about how you interact with your phone. So to go back to the pants thing, you don't have to decide every morning that you're actually gonna wear clothes. You've made that decision already. You might not have decided what you're gonna wear, but you know you're gonna wear you know you're gonna brush your teeth and you know how to brush your teeth. You're not thinking about it. So one of the easiest ways to stick with a habit is to just make it automatic. So when I say, you know, I've healthy food phone routines, I ask people to look back at what they've experimented with over the past month, because the whole book is about experimentation, trying different techniques out to see what works for you, and then keeping the ones that work for you. So, for example, I personally have a little bed set up in my closet that has a plug, and that's where my phone sleeps at mm. night. It actually has a bed. <laughs> not even kidding, but you don't actually have to get, you don't have to be as ridiculous as I am. You can just have a spot that it goes to bed every night. Mm. But Every night I put my phone in there and I close the door and I don't look at my phone till the morning. And it's not a question, it's just what I do. And it's not a restriction. Like, if I do want to check the phone or want to call someone or want to do something, I can do it, but I do it while the phone's plugged in in the closet. So it's inconvenient. Yeah. But put this together, and it means I don't have the phone in the bedroom. You know, like I don't find myself spending the last moments before falling asleep looking at Twitter because it's just not an option. Yeah. And the easier you can make it for yourself, the more successful you'll be. So yeah, establishing healthy phone routines is my attempt to help people do that. Yeah,
0: cool. We're out of time, unfortunately, but the book is called How to Break Up With Your Phone. It's out now. It's available on Amazon. I would have thought anywhere where you can purchase books. How can people get hold
1: of you, Catherine? They can check out the book's website, which is phonebreakup.com that has a contact form. And it also has a 30-day challenge people can sign up for. That's mm-hmm. a series of emails that starts when you sign up that's meant to accompany you as you go through the book and also other sorts of free resources that you can check out also i'm on twitter at katherine underscore price so if people can follow me there you know i don't use social media that much but i mm-hmm. do respond when people contact me yeah. so yeah thank you very much
0: okay cool so we'll link to the book we'll link to the 30-day challenge as well and i am going to try some of this because i definitely think if i don't know many people who wouldn't benefit from a reading the book and b Just if nothing else, doing your digital Sabbath, which is one day a week, no phones at all for 24 hours. And I'm gonna have a go at that along with my partner. So Catherine, thank you very much for joining me and all the best in the future. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, bodyshopperformance.com and click on take the test. And it'll take you through to a very short two to three minute health IQ test. At the end of that, you'll get a scorecard based on your results and a free 39 page report built all around our six signals, which are sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. So jump on the website, bodyshopperformance.com and take our test. Finally, thanks for listening to this show. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard and it's added value to you, share the episode with someone who you think could benefit from it. And don't forget to leave a rating, a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.